0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Michael. And as always, I am joined by Aries. Yeah. And Josh. Hey, hey. And this week we will be talking about the American Dream. If you've heard the French Festival episode, you'll know the American Dream was a show that we were writing for a potential tour. It was a project that we undertook way back, I think in September is when we really started Mm -hmm. putting everything together. lasted through about July and technically, I guess, it's still ongoing to the point that we're recording this until we bring a good stopping place. So yeah, an extraordinarily long process and extraordinarily interesting process because it was something that none of us had ever done before, none of us had ever created a full show. We had all done skits, you know, cabaret pieces, things like that much smaller, more contained and also single person projects. So. A long, three-person, about 60-minute play was a very interesting task to undertake, a very difficult task to undertake. And we'll try and touch on as much of that as possible here. Before we get started, just because I just thought about it, also a part of that long process but not here with us right now on this podcast was our good friend, Kimberly McCallment. Is that how you say her last name? Or is McCall it
1: McCall- McCall-
0: McCall- <laughs> I to change it. But a good friend, Kimberly, or Kimbo, as she allows herself to be called, who was there taking notes for us for a great deal yeah. of, of, of a, lot, a lot of things, not just the project, but also just our regular company meetings, which was, as we said, months upon months of helping us by essentially writing down our thoughts that... You know, I'm sure left our heads the moment we said them, and it it took a great burden off of us. So I just want to thank her for that. Yeah. Since we couldn't have her on, didn't think to have her on for these episodes, but we definitely appreciated her help during that time period when she was able to to work with us. And so now I say we can just jump in at the beginning. Again, as I said back in September, correlating again with the French Festival tour when we decided that we were going to write a show. Of course, we had to have a concept for that show, something to write about, something to play with. And, and I know, Josh, you really took the lead because you kind of had an idea already for something that you wanted to do as we kind of transitioned away from picking out shows that other people had written, thinking back to the the U.S. tour, hitting every state, yeah. trying to find a place from each state. And as we kind of moved away from that, you definitely had had a lot of ideas about things that you were interested in talking about. So just yeah, jump straight into that, kind of what you were thinking, what you were feeling back when we were first starting and creating this show.
1: Yeah, I I definitely wanted to create something that was relevant to the time now, but also a relevant I think in some ways to our American experience. The three of us all grew up in the United States, but in many ways wanted to create something that that looks at the American experience and tries to look at it in a form that can capture its reality a little bit more. So one of the things that I was really playing with was this notion of our dream states, the way that we encounter our dreams versus the way that we encounter reality. And even in conversations with other individuals on campus, it really started to appear to me that there were certain times in which it was easier for people to accept the reality of their everyday life as something that wasn't entirely truthful right? To live in this kind of dream state where we allow ourselves to be passive and not engaged simply because it's easier that way. It's easier not to deal with the trauma. It's it's easier not to deal with the emotional weight of all of the tragedy that is constantly around us in the United States, but certainly also around the world. And so I started to think about the connection between that state of the dream and what are pacifying tools that we're familiar with. And some of the things that I was also connecting and thinking about at that time was folktales and a lot of the, the characters that are kind of inherently American. And one of them that I was really, really looking at was John Henry. And I was able to dive a little bit more into the story of John Henry and really come to find that, well, he was a slave sold into the prison system. And that's a part of his story that I found was represented in a very different way across all of the different presentations of his folk story, whether it's some that are written in books or poems or songs. Disney had a big series where they had a bunch of different kind of American folktale stories that they talked about. And I found it so interesting that even with those stories, certain parts of humans' experience might be omitted simply because it's easier to stomach the story maybe. And so that's where I really started to look at that idea of fables and folk tales as not only something that is really good at being able to look at the birth of America and kind of look at it through that lens or might be an effective lens for us to present the story of America and, and the story of right now. But I think in some ways I was really looking at the idea of these fairy tales and storytelling as what does put children to sleep at night and what does it mean that we use these stories to pacify to silence because in some ways I I felt like that was that was something that was happening within the world today and so I I brought that to Aries and Michael and from there we started to look at some different stories and fables and folktales and whatnot not only from this country but also from around the world yeah so let's dive
0: into that as the kind of the first project that we had for project i guess the first mini project the Mm -hmm. first requirement we dove straight into essentially just researching as many fairy tales as possible or at least i did just trying to find something that uh was interesting that that sparked some kind of sparked some kind of idea whether that be kind of similar to what josh felt seeing the john henry story right uh thinking about you know how do you Relate a fable or a folktale to social issues uh, or political issues of the day, but also just, you know, how do we structure the story? And finding things that would help uh, build ideas that we could reshape and repurpose for the story that we wanted to tell and the plot that we wanted to create. But I just want to pull the room, I guess. How was that process for y'all? Just trying to go through and find any fable or any folktale. Of course there are so many you kind of get to that point where it's kind of like well there's so many options that it feels like there's no options where it feels like it's it's hard to pick because there's just so many things
1: for you to potentially read uh so was that process for you i know for me it was just so overwhelming i think i think the thing that was especially hard about it was that was that was really kind of the start of where we were all thinking of things to contribute to what this story would become, which we'll get to a little bit later in the episode. But I think, I think I had kind of two big barriers. One of which was not really knowing what stories you guys were coming up with. And so feeling like in some ways, you know, the struggle with, well, how how unique does the story need to be versus how cohesive does it need to be? And, And then it was really, you know, going through it. And this was, this was something that this was our first really really big project that we we're taking on certainly one that uh, many parts of the process were certainly very unfamiliar to us and so the fact that it was something that felt like a significant project and a lot of the fables you know might be very simple and it's like well is this is this good enough is this you know is this really the you know one of the one of the stories that we're going to use is this is this right? And I think the ones we settled on were great, but I think it doesn't necessarily, it would have been a problem if we had even found other ones either. But, you know, just in that process, it was just, it was just a little bit difficult to to settle on, okay, what what ones really are, are going to be what moves us forward? Mm-hmm.
2: I think it was it was difficult just because like we didn't know what the structure was. We didn't really know it's like okay, let's find some fables or find some fairy tales and then see what stimulus comes from that and then try to put it all together and hopefully something takes root or we can bite something and be like, "Oh, okay, this really works." Um, I think the most constant thing was that was the John Henry part and so like Josh was really set on using John Henry. And so I know for me I was like, "Okay, how to find Fables or folktales or fair, whatever that could somewhat tie into that or relate to that or act as a supplemental character to the John Henry story or even just the archetypes of John Henry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. I wasn't thinking about uh, meshing up with that John Henry story, but that also point uh, that, that brings me to the fact that back then we were also kind of in the middle of whether or not it would be a circular script with a, a lot of different stories right. kind of centered around the same uh core concept which that dream idea i suppose would have been that that concept i guess people uh thinking mm-hmm. one thing and another being true or, or not noticing mm-hmm. uh what's happening uh underneath right only paying attention to the surface uh and so I, I was able to, or I used that as freedom to just kind of look for anything a little bit. And I think I focused more on uh, finding that idea, which wasn't always easy. Uh, just because the, the interesting thing about folk tales is the writer already gave a message about it. Yeah. That's kind of the interesting thing because it's like we're trying to apply a message. Sometimes a different message to something that already has to something that already has a message. Mm-hmm. So there were certainly, you know, a couple folk tales where I was reading and reading, and I was like, okay, this is interesting, and then you get to the end and the message that the author wanted to give, I don't agree with, yeah. or, or I think that's the wrong message. So that's interesting because then you kind of have the, the, the idea of okay, well, do you change it? Do you use it? And change it, or do you? Do you just let go and not use it at all, even though there are some parts that you like, or even just is the message uh, a good message, but not a message that fits with the core idea that we've decided on. Yeah. It's it's a message that everyone can understand. And there's not some kind of other element or aspect to it. And definitely even the, the, the thought of like, oh, I should find something with another aspect, which even though that probably wasn't true, I think it was definitely something that I, I held on to. And so even mm. that can be something that blinds you in a sense to all the possibilities, because it was always possible for us to make whatever we took work for us, because we were never beholden to using something exactly the way that it originally existed. Uh, in fact, in many ways, that was the entire point. But yeah, but that those were all interesting ideas and sometimes obstacles that that came from my research. I picked like one website. I don't know how, how many places y'all went. I went to I so many. Folk tales. I went to one website and I said, I'm going to just scroll through these stories real quick. <laughs> uh, I said, once I got five, I'm done. And I, I got my five and I was done. And I did not look for anything else. But of course, that was, was certainly sufficient uh, mm. for what we needed. And, and I think even back then, we understood we wanted more than we thought we would use. Right, so I think we each tried to get about five with only the intention of probably using three per not three overall but three each so about nine probably total out of the 15 we tried to gather
1: mm-hmm. well and at that point too, we 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 had to do some learning about what the difference between fables folk tales and myths were, which was kind of interesting because I mean that was something that, I mean obviously I think a lot of us are familiar with those terms but I do think that we wanted to make more poignant use and make specific choices about whether or not we were going to use you know elements of those kind of different genres so I know that was that was something I think Aries you were looking into that a little bit right Mhm Do you remember
2: Yeah I think fables were more allegorical so fables dealt more with animals so you can think like Aesop like again we have Aesop's fables but more commonly, you can think uh Dr. Seuss and the Lorax and Three Little Pigs, things like Animal Farm, things where we're using animals to deliver or portray a specific lesson or purpose. But it can also, and then it also allows different generations to connect to it. So kids can watch it and it's like, oh, it's animals and they learn a lesson. But then, or Zootopia, I think Zootopia is also a great one of like a modern day fable because it connects to kids, but it has some really adult allegorical themes caked Mm -hmm. into it. And so it's like, what I think, I think Ed is the one who's always like, it's like, uh, people who watch Animal Farm and think it's about the animals. And it's like, it's not about animals whatsoever. Whereas folktales derive more from oral tradition, usually centered around people, specific characters, you have archetypes like Paul Bunyan, John Henry, Pescos, And then there were, I found that there were so many different types of folk tales so there was obviously one that was centered around that had animals so like one like little red but again that's different than a fable because little red it's still about the person but animals whether they can talk or they have supernatural abilities is more of a symbol or a manifestation of something related to a human and then fairy tales falls under that which is some magical element to it and it's usually a conflict between good and evil so again we had fables folktales and then myths which i think are probably one of my favorites just because it it usually deals with natural phenomena and how how these things came to be and then it kind of reduces it down to something like the actions of one or two people you know so the fact that earth that the earth could be formed simply by someone you know creating it out of darkness and then taking 7 days to form this you know or The way we get seasons is that Persephone goes down to the underworld, and with the time she's in the underworld, her mother makes all the crops die, you know, things like that, that the actions of one person or multiple people can create these natural phenomena that are still culturally relevant today. So, I was looking at those type of elements, and then how do we connect those to the ones we're finding, and then how do we tell that story? Mm
1: -hmm. And I think we we kind of pulled... Different pieces from each of them. I think ultimately we we mm-hmm. were looking at kind of the large container, more of a folktale, But but I think there certainly were were aspects of each that that can be found there throughout the piece. Yeah.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say I would say the one I would say that what we wrote falls more under folk tales, but we definitely used elements or were influenced by elements from both fables and myths as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, I guess I don't know if, if it helped us, or if it made it more confusing, or... I don't
0: know. Mm-hmm. So, each of those categories, in some degree, it feels somewhat like the things that we did for theories of performance, or or even the, the cavalry class, taking from different genres in order to create a piece, whether it's you know taking from things like the storytelling project that we did, or the image project, and, and being able to use those things with purpose not just to kind of throw them in there but to have them actually Mm -hmm. communicate something i think we did a solid job of that but uh, i mean if it ever if it ever exists if it's ever performed (laughs) i guess that would be the the prime time to to see or to decide whether or not that's actually true yeah
1: Uh, i liked what you were saying earlier about almost the the layers of meaning and i i do think that some of the time that we were first looking at and experimenting with some of that was in the political social cabaret class because, you know, how do we frame something in such a way that the experience that the audience receives, you know, uh, might turn the original meaning on its head? And that, I think, was was a really cool part for us to start to discover as we were bringing some of these these different stories to the table. And so, I guess, we each, we each came up with between three and five stories. Do we want to say what those were
0: yeah so we kind of had things coming out of that process of the research that we took from certain fairy tales so i think we should definitely hit on those Mm -hmm. what are those elements and and how are they shaping the show up until that point for example from a fable by probably should have researched how to say his name but i assume he's french (laughs) jean de la fontaine is what i'll say if you know how to say his name. I did not say it right. Please keep that to yourself. Just uh, Add us yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> Call him out. Yeah, you, you can add us on Twitter, I guess. But yes, so a folktale called the Animals Sick of the Plague, and, and essentially a council of animals try to figure out why a plague has fallen on them. And the stronger animals, the predators, who we consider them to be, excuse their own wrongdoings and then try and place the blame onto the weaker animals uh animals right using their smaller their much smaller offenses to to essentially scapegoat them and, and scapegoat them. Is that a verb uh mm. but to make them a scapegoat mm. uh and to blame them for the problems that they were having in their community the play that they were trying to fight off instead of taking responsibility for their own actions and i would say that was probably one of the larger contributions because it's really what we shaped our show off. of. It was Mm -hmm. something very Mm -hmm. enticing about the idea of people with power at that point, kind of manipulating, manipulating the view, manipulating the story, manipulating perspectives in order to make other people's much smaller actions seem like the worst thing in the world. It felt very, at the time what's the best word I don't know what the best word would be but I mean it just felt really felt like something that is always happening how often do do you find people blaming themselves because of their small mistakes versus you know corporations or politicians which are causing much more lar- much larger much more direct and intentional harm without being scrutinized at all even thinking about how you know people, blame themselves for, you know, the use of straws or something like that Mm -hmm. in terms of the environment, but do nothing about companies that abuse the environment or people who try and, you know, pass bills that allow oil companies and things like that in order to dig in national natural parks or national parks or whatever they're called. (laughs) Right? But the concept that excuse me, the concept that there is uh, a much larger wrongdoing at hand and it's being um, ignored and downplayed and people are being manipulated into into thinking that mm-hmm. they should always look inwardly and that everything is their personal individual fault. but instead of everyone truly taking ownership of, of, of what they're doing, right which would include people at the top, people with power, And even people just not allowing their own self-interest to blind themselves to uh, how their actions impact and affect others.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the kind of the culture of blaming the victim, um, especially, you know, with with a lot of the police shootings and whatnot, there's a tendency in the news for for people to look at, oh, well, you know, what? What, what are these small, insignificant things that somebody does to deserve the outcome? And that's in some ways entirely disturbing. And it, it really is a way for people to get away from actually addressing the, the more significant and immediate problems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's one of the ideas, kind of a
0: social idea. Also, it was just structurally interesting. Yeah. As I said, we were playing with the idea originally of a circular script. So, something like that where, you know, you have a council trying to figure out you know, what's what's causing our pain, what, what's causing the thing that is ailing us, it allows to kind of break off into smaller individual stories as well and to, to dive in and then take someone else's fable and also apply it because you can just say, oh, what did the tiger do? What did the mouse do? And then you can kind of dive into its own specific folktale fable story with its own specific message and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, overall it was just very appealing, maybe even more so structurally.
1: I might be getting ahead of us a little bit, but I think the the plague as kind of a symbol of the perpetual kind of poison within the notion of the American dream and a lot of the American systems was something that was symbolically really enticing. And I liked that we were starting with aspects of figurative language that would shape the story in a way that the audience then is perceiving the story on these multiple different levels in some ways trying to get them to, to work through some of the concepts in the show in a bit more of an intellectual way. And I think it was, it was something that once COVID came around ended up being almost a little bit devastating because that was something that, that really was such a strong image. And I think we even had discussions at a certain point about the fact that you know, is the audience just going to perceive the plague in the story as well, the literal plague that we're now kind of experiencing? And so that definitely saddened me, partly because that was such such an important and impactful way to to frame our social plague. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: But then as COVID got worse, it was kind of, it had gotten to the point where it was like, we can't just ignore COVID. Like if we're creating this piece in the time frame. And at that time we were still going to the French festivals. Mm-hmm. It was like to completely ignore, not saying that we need to completely change and make it about COVID, but but, but some of those themes were coming up in regards to COVID yeah. of our access, you know, in isolation to our access to resources, what we couldn't, couldn't do and who we were blaming, you know? So it's like, I mean, we had, you know, a president who was coming out and was saying, we're doing great and it's not our fault. It's, you know, this other country's fault and we're clearly sitting here it's like, but we weren't told to actually do anything to preserve ourselves, to save ourselves. And then it's always someone else's fault and everybody's blaming each other. And the people who are actually dying have no voice. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was an interesting place to be in to also be writing it during this time, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I do wanna do wanna stress, we decided on a plane before COVID.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh yeah.
1: So yeah, on, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Which we just did. Get that but yeah,
0: and I, I, what I really think it did is it, as we were writing things, it, it proved what we were writing.
1: Because yeah. At that point, we were point. just
0: trying to figure out well, how do we do this stuff? Or how do we properly represent how characters would react and interact? I felt like a lot of what we were already saying was getting confirmed. But yeah, it was useful in that I feel like you kind of got the real person perspective. Mm. Even though obviously we were predicting and I feel like we had still a good amount of things to predict on because even though we had a literal pandemic to worry about, I feel like with the number of social issues, how the response happens is mainly the same. I think the yeah, the the literal blame game blame game is a little different or really where the difference lies. Because in most social issues or political issues, you can't really say, you know, look at how this issue is negatively affected us and people aren't responding i think that's really the the unique part about it which is kind of interesting because that's not what we were ever talking about Mm -hmm. right we were never talking about the sense of like oh how do you do medicine obviously it's set in a time where it's like it's not like people were going to you know a hospital or something Mm -hmm. like that and getting vaccines or anything like that so for those characters they had to look to other places to try and solve the plague which was kind of point so some of that stuff was was interestingly enough left out sort of on purpose just to hit on other stuff so it was interesting to see how people would respond if they had those options i guess and, and to some degree our character's didn't but we also got to rethink you know should they should they be looking at looking for these things looking for other ways to 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 stave off the plague and how does that also impact how does the the sense of i'm trying everything and i'm failing change what we do with the character so definitely some interesting
1: some some really interesting things to think about so the the research that we did definitely was a big part of creating the structure but mm-hmm. it really was kind of a concurrent discussion of not only what is what is the action what is the plot but how will it be framed what is the structure going to be mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so difficult clearly if we yeah oh no
1: it it was challenging
0: way very difficult wouldn't recommend it necessarily
1: what <laughs> did it just seemed like there were so many different possibilities
0: yeah and I, I, mean, I think that was really the difficult thing because there yeah so many possibilities and then how each possibility exists in each individual person's mind and so mm-hmm. how I'm thinking about one person's possibilities and how anybody else is and so I mean just just the difficulty with working with three if you're not all on the same page when it comes to the process, all on the same page when it comes to what things mean, uh, mm-hmm. what terms mean and what uh, you mean by you a know, certain certain phrase. There's a possibility for someone to say something, everybody agree, and then everyone be thinking about it completely separately uh, if you're not specific enough uh, and clear enough. Uh, and so that was definitely a, a huge difficulty. I do remember trying to go off of a reversal and recognition and trying to find a place to put that in the play. We also had I think at that point we also had a trick the trickster character, correct? I think those were the two main characters. Yeah, the trickster and the donkey.
2: no, we had the farm not farmer. We had John Henry and then we had the donkey. And then we were John trying Henry. to figure out
0: I think John Henry was later. Yeah I think John Henry was later. I think John Henry was later. I'm pretty sure it was the trickster because I mean, yeah, there was that was the driving force. That was the, the main play character and we were having so much fun playing with like could he be different people? And I, I, I remember that being the main thing. And then I remember also because we were having talks about can he talk to the audience or not? And mm-hmm. I remember vaguely like does he win or not? we were talking about can we include the audience in his victory and as a way to make the audience a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff, and that was months and months and months ago, almost a year ago, actually. We're like two months out from it being about a year ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but even from that spiel, you can tell it's like, it's just kind of fragments everywhere and no way to align them. So it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of a very difficult, uh, difficult thing to do and I'm not sure it would have gotten any easier if we'd have stayed on that path but luckily we didn't really have to because about a week after I got back from Ohio with our first in-person meeting where we really were trying to work things out I found on I can't remember the website but one of those websites where you can like essentially pay for a subscription and read a bunch of books and get access to a bunch of PDFs and things like that. I found a copy of The Art of Dramatic Writing by Lajos Agri. Is it Lajos? Let me see, I have the pronunciation. We'll get his pronunciation right, considering he did a great <laughs> deal for us <laughs> yep. in terms of Lajos Egri. Uh Agri. Okay. Agri. Lajos Egri. Uh, So, uh, I found a copy of The Art of Dramatic Writing by Laios Agni and randomly decided to get it uh, (laughs) and read through it. uh, Because why not? I mean, again, we'll say this many, many times. We are not playwrights. So, I didn't even know if it was a good book. I just saw this book. I was like, is this good? I went to the Google reviews. I went to Amazon. (laughs) How do people feel about this book? They were like, it's cool. So, I was like, all right, I guess I'll read it uh so who knows there might be someone sitting at home that's a playwright that's like oh no we we hate that book we discontinued it that book was canceled years ago (laughs) i I don't know what to tell you i didn't have that info uh but it seemed cool and interesting to me and as i started to read it, it certainly had a lot of interesting premises because it was very different from what you know i was used to from kind of our education not as playwrights, but as directors and what you focus on in terms of uh, creating a show. They had some some different thoughts about that, Different, very different thoughts about even who the protagonist is and who the
1: antagonist mm-hmm. is.
0: I think that was the, the biggest throw possible because it was kind of flipped entirely on its head. Because well, up, about...
1: up to that point, we understood the protagonist mostly from the context of... Aristotle and the somewhat the structure of the dramatic hero and in some ways what we understood to be the protagonist in Igri's mind almost the what we understood almost as the antagonist was what Igri kind of defined as the protagonist but Egri also defined a couple other critical roles within the creation of conflict and action within the story. Can you guys describe a little bit more about what those roles were? It's interesting
0: because I feel like it's one of those things where you jump into it. If if I just clipped that and gave it to somebody, maybe they'd be like, "This is a bad book," right? Because I feel like you say the uh, Aristotelian idea of protagonist. I feel like it's everybody's idea of protagonist. I feel like it's almost the standard concept of protagonist mm-hmm. in many places, at least in the Western world or at least mm-hmm. here in America. I feel like it was kind of the standard. I had never really heard of any other different way to define the protagonist, and it's really. Definition-based. I mean, I I said it in that phrase there. It's just definition-based. He just defines the word differently. He actually goes off of the dictionary definition of protagonist for his time, and there was something along the lines of the person who creates and causes action, and so he essentially said, well, that's who we typically think of as the bad guy. That's the person who is creating the issues or the problems in the world, creating the difficulties because they are causing the most things to happen. And the other characters exactly. are responding to the things that they are causing. And so that's why characters traditionally thought to be the antagonist think, oh, I don't know what his name is, but think the 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 guy who is blackmailing the woman in a doll's house. you would typically think, well, he's just the antagonist. He's bribing her. He's mm-hmm. threatening to bring all this stuff to her husband. He's trying to ruin their life. He's the antagonist. But Eggerty would say, no, he's the protagonist because it's the fact that he is bringing this information that's causing everybody else to move in a way that's different from what's typical to their world. It's yeah. causing everybody else to respond. And so that's why you're the protagonist based off of definition and based off the fact that you cause the most action. And then he keeps the same idea. Well, who goes against the protagonist? Well, it's the antagonist. And that's how you get that that flip, that interesting flip of who should be considered the protagonist and the antagonist. And now, people that we would typically say, this is the bad guy, this is the antagonist. Well, no. If you're causing action, if you're causing the most action, I don't care if you're good or bad, if you're causing the most action, you're the protagonist. If you're going against the person, if you're trying to stop the person that's causing that action, you're the antagonist.
2: And then you have the one and- who's caught in the middle...
0: Yes. And, and, and that's who he refers to as the pivotal character. And this kind of goes into another element of, of character that Egity talks about, which is transition, how characters change over time. And so Egity says the person who is the protagonist is going to change the least. They know what they want. They're going out to get it. And even if they don't get what they want, they'll never change how they feel about what they want. So they'll, they'll go through the smallest transition throughout the entire show. The antagonist has a change and can have a, a, certainly a larger change than the protagonist, but it's not necessarily going to be this large, crazy shift, right? And it's very unlikely that you'll see this character completely change how they think about the world. The reason for that is because in Eddie's mind, the, the antagonist must be strong enough to fight against the protagonist. So you can't have an antagonist that's kind of that's going to kind of give up on the conflict give up on the on pushing back give up on fighting in the middle mm-hmm. and, and that kind of change might suggest that it might suggest a move away from conflict or a slowing down of the conflict so really that pivotal character is that third character who is going to go through the greatest change throughout the entirety of the show and they're much more likely to have something you know reminiscent of a reversal and recognition something that's going to change their viewpoint of the world that they live in change their viewpoint of of how things work and how things should be so going back to the doll's house reference just so people kind of understand how this setup would work as I said already the man who's blackmailing would be the protagonist don't jump so quick to say that the antagonist would be uh, would be Nora Uh, the antagonist isn't Nora. The antagonist is her husband. And so you might think the antagonist to Krogstad is Nora, but it's not. It's actually Torvald. That might come as a surprise because he is not aware of Krogstad's presence for so much of the play. But the reality is the person who wants to push back against what Krogstad wants the most is Torvald. I mean, we see Nora try and convince him to give Krogstad what he wants. I mean that by definition is not is not uh, representative of what's going to be an antagonist to Krogstad's protagonist right If it was just Nora and Krogstad in the play and Torvald didn't exist uh, to be uh-huh. staunch and to be unmoving uh, and this unwilling force that even though he isn't always in the know about what's happening in the play slows down what's happening in the play, then the play would descend. Croftstad would say, "Give me a position in the bank," and Nora would say, "Okay." And now the plays over, right? And so that's why Torvald is uh, the antagonist to Croftstad's protagonist because he's the one that's stopping Kroc Stad, uh his ideals from succeeding and it also makes sense because as we said nora goes through the greatest change i mean that's kind of what makes the play so important and so special mm-hmm. uh, is the realization that she goes through about what her life is like what her marriage is like what her status as a person is like and it completely changes her worldview uh, and it causes her to end up desiring something that at the beginning of the play she never would have thought that she would have desired which was that kind of freedom to find herself uh, and understand herself, and and distance herself from just being uh, a person in regards to the men in her life, but a a person for herself. And so that's how that split happens, and that's how that split exists in Egri's understanding of how writing works, or or, or ideals about how writing works.
1: I I think this would be a good moment to then talk about the idea of the premises and the bone structure. And, and how those kind of fit into Egri's framework, too. So that premise
0: is very interesting. So I would say the most interesting thing about Egri is, is his devotion and interest in character. Character really begets everything. Character begets conflict, and then conflict begets action. But before you can even get to character, you must first deal with premise. And so essentially what premise is, I would consider it kind of similar to how we think of function of why, you know, why are you writing this play? Why are you creating this piece? But essentially the way that Egan talks about it is uh, you want to have a point that you want to prove by the end of the play. And so before you even jump in with creating characters, you need to understand what am I trying to prove? And the way that you structure it somewhat determines how you will prove it. So we can actually use uh, American Dream as a good example. So our original premise for the show was Power Perverts Morality. Out of the bat, that that suggests what the ending of the play is going to look like. Power Perverts Morality. That means at the end of the play, we're going to have some kind of scene or structure or situation which will show that characters are being immoral in pursuit of or because of
1: power. And the premise is different than the idea of theme. We often talk about the fact that theme is something that's created in the audience. It's not necessarily something that needs to be... Theme isn't directly manifested out of the actions that are on stage, but could be something that might be part of its interpretation or or part of the received experience. Premise is a lot more directly connected to the events and action in the play.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yes, because it directs them. I mean, as you're the, the hope after you create a premise is that as you're writing the uh, play, you can say, I'm on the way to proving my premise. And it's a great way to say, if you have started to fall off in your writing, or if your writing has started to become less consistent, if you can look at it and say, well, we've gotten to the end, can I prove my premise? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is yeah, but I have to do a whole lot of writing and retconning and fast character changes and crazy jumps then you'll know okay well I have not i haven't been completing the, the the task that i need to complete in order to ensure that we reach a consistent logical end that proves my premise premise should always suggest your end uh I believe i like think he said it, it, it's almost like a synopsis it's almost like a synopsis of your play a very very small very very compact synopsis of your play But it should be suggesting uh, where your play is going at all times. Um, So looking at some potential examples that Edgar gives, materialism conquers mysticism, prudishness leads to frustration, bragging leads to humiliation, dishonesty leads to exposure. Those are all examples of premise. And you see they all follow the same format. And again, it it comes back to that idea of synopsis. So it's kind of about, or it all kind of represents picking, you know, that first noun or adjective or character trait, which will help you create your characters. Like, you know, bitterness, foolishness, honesty, power in our sense, uh, the desire for power that kind of suggests character. Then that middle phrase leads to defeats, destroys, digs, suggests action. And then of course. Poverty, friendship, mysticism—it just suggests the end. It suggests the the end of the play. What the final state is, what our kind of new stasis will look like. Right, we'll, we'll be in poverty. Right, foolish generosity leads to poverty. So, a character's foolishness will cause the end of the the play to to have some sense of poverty, whether they're in poverty or someone else is in poverty. Some leads to loss of friends. Right, a character trait, someone's egotism leads to will be your action. Well, where are we at the end of the play? Someone has lost friends. But essentially he promotes the the use of premise as a way to understand the point that you're trying to prove within your play and then make sure that you're always moving towards that point to make sure that you're always going to prove that point. There's no situation in which you kind of create a play and what you mean to do is up in the air. Now, obviously as, as readers, as audience members, you'll always be able to come up with your own ideas and come up with your own thoughts about what's happening. But entity kind of suggests as a writer, you should know what you are attempting to do and do well to try and move towards succeeding in doing what you're trying to do. And then, of course, that kind of leads to character. So actually, you can talk about that first word again, like we just said, whether it's bitterness, foolishness, honesty, or even power, it suggests something about the character that you will have to create in order to set the play in motion. And character is character is probably the most important thing, at least it seems like, yeah. to Egeri, even more important than the plot or anything like that. Because there's the sense that without a properly constructed character, you won't even get to the plot. Mm. You won't even get to the action of the play because you'll never have the necessary conflict in order to force things to happen. Uh, and that's kind of what character construction seems to be about for equity. It's how do you create two forces that will be volatile enough that they must go up against each other. They must interact with each other. They must push back and forth, right? Things absolutely must happen. Otherwise, you're you're risking creating plays that are either much too fast, right? They're they're not properly paced, so things just kind of jump off and occur out of nowhere where it doesn't make sense. You have two characters who are just kind of chilling, having a good time, and then all of a sudden they're at their throats with no way for the audience to see or make sense of it or see based on their character traits, the things that they say, oh, this is obviously going to be an impending clash between these two characters. Or you just have kind of a boring play where nothing really happens because nobody really ever has conflict with one another, or at least realistic conflict with one another. So that's kind of why character is so, so, so important to Egony. And the thought becomes, well, how do you know? How do you know factually that you're going to create this really nice character? Or these really nice characters that are going to have conflict with one another, where it's it's impossible for them to not? Well, Egony says, you know, just write out a 27-step. Character description. <laughs> Literally
1: yeah, every right. facet of the character. Yeah,
0: that, that's the best thing to do. So he says, "Here's 27 steps, uh split up between the characters' physiology, sociology, and psychology, and go ahead and write down everything you could ever possibly know about them before writing any kind of dialogue or anything of that nature." So we'll we'll take a break. We've been explaining a lot. How did y'all feel? hearing about the 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 tri-dimensional bone structure right the three dimensions physiology sociology and those things work together to create psychology 27 steps how did y'all feel about the
1: the bone structure if we are really going to construct these characters that you know are going to be interacting in a way that does create some sort of a meaningful premise then or that is able to to resolve somewhat of a meaningful premise that we do want to make sure that these characters are not just two-dimensional. So I think that was that was really neat and the idea of really breaking them down also seemed like a good thing for us to do given that there was right 3 of us all working on writing this thing simultaneously because there's a lot that can go unspoken or a lot of things that you know might might appear more obvious in each of our minds than it might to other people and so this was a way where we could all get on the same page and all add our little details and ideas about who a character might be, what a character's interest might be and, and motivations and that helped us be able to think about objectives and possible tactics and it was something that I think made the prospect of writing seem like it would be a little bit easier with multiple people. So that's, I think, Mm -hmm. why I was most excited about it. I like that aspect of the homework of just making
2: decisions about a character that will then influence decisions that they will make. And it was much more... It was more in-depth and I felt like more meaningful than just being like, well, what's this character's favorite color? Or what did this character eat for breakfast, you know, in the morning? Which is some of the basic things that people will try to do as they're forming a character. But again, a lot of it was that relation between internal and external, you know, how did the external influence the internal, which then affects the external, which then influences the internal And it becomes this cycle of the things that people have done to me influence the things that I do to them, which then influence the things people do to me. And this never ending cycle of action, which is really what we want to focus on. So I
1: did enjoy it. It was nice. And I also thought it was a good it was it was a good three kind of groups to focus on Mm -hmm. the physiology, psychology and, and sociology. It was divided up fairly evenly, as far as the different things that were focused on, but just those three areas, neglected to mention a lot of things that didn't matter as much, but included a lot that really did inform so many of our decisions. And I think the fact that we did have that experience that did kind of reinforce its effectiveness to me was also quite rewarding. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the, I think just the depth of uh, what he was asking for, it was like forced clarifications. Like yeah. you have to understand who is, you want to make this character. I need you to understand who they are. I need you to understand at their core who they are and how who they are affects how other people see them or affects how they're going to interact with the, they're going to interact with these other characters. Whereas I feel like when you're just kind of if you don't really think about it as much, if you don't think about your character design as something that's going to affect how other characters see them you're just kind of sketching something out based on what you kind of see in your head which is how i would traditionally think to do it or or normally personally think to do it plenty of things that are actually incredibly important are going to fall under the radar just thinking you know something like and i think it i think it falls under sociology but you know how do other people in his community see a character see a character um and i think for certain characters that we had like the farmer Like John Henry, that was an element that was extraordinarily important to how they would act and interact with other people. And while I wouldn't say that we would never have gotten there in terms of how that affected the characters, the kind of actions that I was willing to write for a character, knowing that information, I think it was just much easier to know that from the beginning. And even whenever we transitioned to that point, thinking about we were plotting out the transitions... For characters, that information was even pretty important. I would say, for the most part, I wouldn't say it was. I'd say it was easy. There were some things we had to really think about. I would say some things we were just like, eh, whatever. Put it in yeah. there.
1: Yeah, there were definitely some things that seemed like, okay, does this actually really matter? But I think. D- did give us license to actually really take a moment and think, okay, does this matter? And I think even just that process of evaluation was something that was really helpful.
0: Yeah. And especially, I mean, those things depend on the show, definitely. And so we, we might have a completely different list of, of elements that didn't matter as much. I think especially even just thinking back to the fact that we were making a three-man show with us. Yeah. Right? And so there was a degree is like, What's the physiology of the character? This us, Yep. right? This character looks like Aries because it's going to be played by Aries. Can't look like anybody else outside of like the tricksters uh, for things like transformations and things like that. But okay. for the most part, you know, sorry, you got to look like us. We can't, we can't really do anything different about that in a significant way, right? I mean, if we wanted to put somebody on stilts, I guess we could have tried. But, That's doable. Yeah, I'd be interested. I put I put Aries on some stilts. <laughs> absolutely, put Ares on some stilts. but yeah, but it was definitely interesting. Definitely time consuming, especially going through it the first time. Uh, I'm sure it took up like the entire hour or two hour meeting yeah, that we had just hours. being thorough. But I mean, that's just how things are. Especially long tasks. As time went on, we got faster. As so we had mm-hmm. a greater understanding of what's you know, possible and what's not, what's plausible, and what's not. What are we going to consider? Even the physiology question, I think for the first time we did it, we really sat with that physiology was that was the character look like question and then later we were just like, yeah, it looks like us. So we can keep moving. Can write down write down Michael's name, that's the character Michael's <laughs> playing. So keep it going. But yeah, so Certainly interesting, a longer task, made even longer because of the fact that, again, we're doing all of this together. So it's not like someone's going to go take it home. Obviously, you could probably do it much faster if you were writing solo and could kind of pick it up whenever you wanted to versus us doing it biweekly. Yeah, long, long task, but I think ultimately worthwhile, ultimately enjoyable. We'll do it again. Not for this play, but in general, we'll do it again. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I think what came next was very different, Uh, very interesting, plotting uh, the transitions. We talked about transitions before, essentially how characters change, and we spent about eight weeks trying to plot why or how our three major characters would change in order to prove our premise. It was a a long ordeal. It was our ordeal. I would never say we we fought, but it was heated. It was the most heated or even heated seems like not the best word, but I mean, it was just, it was a lot to, to think about. Mm -hmm. And so I think when, when you're thinking about ideas going back and forth, that was one of the bigger moments where it was like, you, we can't just be like, whatever everybody else wants to do, I'll do at some point. You know, I feel like that was really the point where it's like, all right, now we have to start making uh, a stand and then Expressing when we don't understand something, expressing when we don't agree with something in order to have something that is cohesive, something that is direct, something that is understood by us all. As I said, it's very easy to to say something, to say one thing and assume everyone gets it and that not be the case. So this was definitely a, a long and interesting part of the process and a part of the process that we will have to cover later. Uh, because our time is up (laughs) for this week. Hopefully you have enjoyed the talk so far, and hopefully you will enjoy the next part of the discussion where we really start talking about setting up to actually write it, and then, of course, diving into really finally writing this play. At that point, it it had been months past. When we started again, we we started creating Uh ideas back in September, and around Uh October, November, and I think it's around... Well, it was around March or something that we started writing, or maybe even May. It may have been May, because I think we had our first deadline sometime after Josh was supposed to graduate sometime after that that last week of school, sometime after finals or something like that. So it might have been around late March or May, months, months later, where we finally got to, to dive into and experience what writing would be like. So... Hopefully you will join us for that. Until then, feel free to talk to us, send us
1: questions, ask us about the process over on our Twitter. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right, Michael. Our Twitter is at Imperium Podcast. That's I-M-P-E-R-I-U-M Podcast. Let us know what you think. Have you ever considered writing your own piece? Are the ideas that Egri proposes interesting to you? Was Egri somebody who you had heard of before? Please let us know. We'd love to have a conversation with you and we'd love to hear what you think. I don't know how y'all
0: felt, but I feel content and I feel like that also sums up the entire process. So yeah, interesting week. I think it was a fun week, fun discussion. And hopefully next week we can bring a similar level of energy and enjoy it just as much. So please join us. We'll be back next week talking about the American dream. And we hope that you join us for part two of our discussion of this long, interesting project that we undertook.